Hello and welcome to Associated, the podcast making venture capital more accessible. I'm Lois and today I'm co-hosting with the lovely Francesca. Hello. Hello Lois, how are you? I'm all right, thank you. How are you? I'm great, thanks. Super excited to get season three underway. Um, But do you want to introduce our listeners to our guest today? Yes, of course. Let's do it. Today, we're joined by a very special and fun guest. We've got Will Bricker, who's an associate at Hustle Fund. Hello, how are you? Hey, I'm uh, I'm upset that we didn't talk about the stuffed animals in Francesca's background. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, that's supposed to be a secret. You know I could edit this out. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, no, I'm camped out at my parents' place at the moment, and I'm an animal lover from a very young age. So as a result, I have a fine collection of uh, stuffed animals. And where are you at the moment, Will? Uh, as you can tell, well, it's fun. It's always fun to look at people's Zoom backgrounds. I feel like that's a new thing that goes on in our modern world. Uh, I am sitting in Berkeley, California. Um, and Will, you've got moving boxes behind you. You're on the move. I'm on the move. I'm going back home to New York next week. So excited to be back home. Interesting time to move. Not good at logistics or moving, uh, basically, in any time, never mind now. But uh, it will be a fun adventure. Yeah, well, and we were just talking about working from home, weren't we? And whether it will ever go back to quote-unquote normal, whether we'll ever be in the office again. And your view is that not for the foreseeable, right? Yeah, I think it completely depends on the industry and the preferences of the people who are at the top. But, you know, Hustle has been remote for a while now, pre-lockdown. And so for us, it wasn't that big of a shift. And I see more and more people around me moving to virtual and figuring out the whole Zoom thing. And I think it's just a strong trend um, that I don't think is going to change. And I think depending on the industry, it could be the new normal. Mm. Yeah. And you've mentioned hustle now. So actually, it strikes me that some of our listeners might not know who you are. So could you tell us a little bit about what you do your day to day, a little bit about Hustle Fund? Yeah. So Hustle Fund is a pre-seed venture fund. Um, started by three partners, Elizabeth Ian, Eric Bon, and Xian Ko. And we like to say that we invest hilariously early. We are basically looking for companies that have a strong founder set and an MVP of a product and distribution and who we believe that we can help kind of embark on a journey to help build them to be the next unicorn or mega success company. And so what we do is actually a little bit of a different investing model. We do uh, at first a 25K check uh, if we think that there's a fit uh, to do a growth project with you. So something where we can add value to what you're doing, get to know you better and help inform our subsequent investments uh, and hopefully find if there's a real fit and partnership going forward. The whole idea, um, Elizabeth's background is at 500 startups and her thesis was, hey, a lot of these companies that I'm investing in, if I got a chance to work with them first, I'd be able to make a lot better and more informed investments. So why don't I try to create a venture fund that incorporates this lesson and thesis into it? Um, So after the first phase 25K check, if we think that we found a good fit, we will do a second investment, a follow-on investment, 
normally around 250K, that basically tries to align as well as possible with the funding cycle of the company that we're investing in. And the idea is basically to get that information up front and then to concentrate our beliefs in the second phase. Mm. So it's a little bit of a different investing model. Yeah. Do you find that when founders are aware of that model, do they time approaching you so that they sort of see that 25K check and growth project as an extended period of due diligence such that they'll be able to raise that quarter of a million for you at the time that's right for them? I think sometimes, but I think most times companies are just looking to get uh, an investor to work with, right? And what's great about us is we have three GPs who have founder backgrounds. They were all founders themselves. And so the value that we provide is more than just the check. It's having you know, one of our GPs with you in sandbox trying to figure out hey, how do we make this thing what we believe it can be? And so they're willing to get that value basically whenever they can and knowing that we're flexible when we do our follow-on investments based on what's best for them. Could you give us an example of a growth project that one of the partners has worked on? Yeah, so there are a bunch of them um, and it depends a lot on the company. We don't try to force a project for project's sake. On a company, we try to understand, hey, what are their biggest needs? But um, one of them is, you know, we have a company that we are trying to understand how do we build their V1 distribution. They're a logistics company, right? And so thinking about, hey, how do we streamline the onboarding process? So we're going and trying to figure out, hey, what is the best channel that you can use right now? to acquire customers quickly that is ideally going to be scalable going forward, but that we can get us solid traction now. So this company is trying to do third-party delivery, right? We're in an age of everything now is delivered, right? So, hey, how do we help connect this company with small independent businesses who all of a sudden need delivery needs. What does it look like to actually identify those customers? How do you approach them? What's the value proposition that's most important? And how can you do it quickly and efficiently? I think is a, is a great example of what we do, right? It's not just doing it, but it's, hey, how can we do it in a scrappy, low-cost, fast way? So they're helping you move? No. No, they're not. But I would love for you to talk to <laughs> them about be, that. You could be a guinea pig. Uh, yeah, be perfect use case, I'm sure. And um, in terms of you know, great use case there, but do your partners go in and, and work with them for a week, two weeks? Like what is it a session based model? Is it a course based model? What does it look like? Yeah. Um, so it's normally a kind of a, a session based model, I guess is what you would call it, where we set a goal and a concentration area. And over six weeks, we have at least one weekly stand-up where the partner kind of helps check in and understand what's going on and advise going forward. We'll run multiple tests, kind of hone in on the thing we want to focus on, and then try to iterate that thing as quickly as possible. And clearly, it's different for every company in terms of how much touch they need and how quickly their kind of discovery process is and their customer acquisition and growth process is. Um, We also are piloting kind of a school method. Our idea is, hey, we have a lot of kind of great lessons and content and learning that we can provide. Is there a way that we can more efficiently provide it to our our investments? So 
be on the watch for that. That will be uh, coming out ideally in the next couple of quarters. Excellent. We'll look out for that. Um, Will, how much do you get involved in those growth projects versus looking at new investments? Like how is your time split? Yeah, so I think there's basically two parts to my core responsibilities, which kind of has evolved from how I got into HustleFund in the first place, which was I left my old world of finance uh, where I had learned a lot about how to invest, the theory behind investing, especially like systemizing investing and using data. Came out to California to try to understand the landscape of entrepreneurship and startups better and did a series of deals with people where I was like, hey, I get my MBA, so my labor is pretty free right now. I'll work for you and try to add value to what you're doing if you take some time to teach me. Like all I'm asking is that you help me learn. Uh, And so I did a series of deals or kind of arrangements. One of them ended up being the LP of Hustle Fund was like, hey, Elizabeth, uh, I'd love if you would talk to this guy um, about an internship. And she was like, I'm not looking for an intern. I I don't I don't really know what I'm going to talk to him about. And he was like, give this guy 30 minutes. Um, And I came in and said, hey, listen, like, I think that there's a thing where I can help you use data and technology to better execute your investment process. Why don't we try it out? Give me a month and let's see what I can do. And that ended up kind of progressing from there to where now I'm working with them full time. And so my day-to-day is one of the variations of the traditional associate role where you're doing the due diligence for the companies, right? You think about the life cycle venture, sourcing, investing, support, right? I'm very focused on the investing part. So I'll do all of the basic first round due diligence for companies that we're investing in in North America. The second part of what I do, which relates more to how I first got in, was this idea of kind of systemizing the way that Hustle invests. So I've created kind of an ecosystem where we have a set of data we capture, rules that we formalize, and platforms to interact with it all. And I kind of sit on top of the machine to make sure that right now it's running correctly, things are progressing through it, there aren't any errors, and periodically stopping to do investigations to say, okay, what have we learned? How can we improve it? What can we do better? What should we think about? So I say those are kind of like the two core parts of my responsibilities, the run the machine and oversee and evolve the machine. That sounds super interesting. And I'm interested to know because venture capital is quite niche. Do correct me if I'm wrong, because I've never really been in a different investing environment. But in terms of the processes that you go through, was there anything that really surprised you in regards to the process and, and the lack of data around it? Or I'm putting words into your mouth here. Is anything that surprised you? So I think that every venture firm does things differently and that each stage of venture, whether it be early, growth, late, are very different games. And it's funny, like uh, when I used to work in finance, uh, I was an interviewer for the fund I worked for. And people would come in and say, I want to work for a hedge fund. And I always joked that like, that doesn't tell me anything really, because every hedge fund is a really big umbrella term where a lot of people are doing a lot of different things in super different ways. And so 
hedge fund doesn't tell me what you want to do or how you think about investing. And I think venture capital is very similar in that it is so different with each player and each phase. And so I think I came in from a kind of public markets background where there's a lot of great data thinking, you know, hey, like, let's just kind of plug and play and repeat. And what you realize is that especially in early stage venture, like we're doing, the data isn't there. And so part of the problem is not just figuring out what you do with the data, but it's figuring out how you creatively generate the data or source it otherwise. And so um, before I got into all of this, I did like a bunch of interviews with other venture firms who I heard were trying to implement some data in their process, just talking to them and be like, hey, how are you thinking about this? What are you doing? What's worked? What's not? And what you learn is that everybody's doing things differently, but they agree that the biggest issue is creatively generating data that is high quality data that you can use. And so I think um, I probably knew that that was an issue, but I think it was, I realized it was even more of an issue as I got deeper into it. And I think it's the main problem that we focus on right now as we try to evolve our systemized investing system. Hmm. Can I just take it back a little bit and, and talk to you a bit more about kind of how you started to think about this? Because I can see the link between where you were previously in the finance world and kind of um, the the jump that you were making into the venture world. And I'm, I'm curious about why it's important to you. Why is the of venture something that you care about? Yeah. So early in my career, I kind of worked for a firm called Bridgewater, which is a quantitative macro firm. And what was amazing about Bridgewater was seeing the way that they thought about investing. And I would say it was really eye-opening. Whereas I'd seen a lot of investors kind of relying on intuition and what their gut said um, and investment decision-making being very concentrated in the hands of a few key players, Bridgewater took a completely different strategy where their idea was, hey, we have this thing called a computer that provides capabilities that we aren't as good at as humans. And so how can we leverage technology to help us be better investors? And it's not just kind of like the black box thing, right? That I think a lot of us think of when they think of like quantitative funds or quantitative investing, but it's, hey, how do we create structured processes? How do we use data to help inform our decisions? And then how do we record our activity decisions and thinking in a way that helps us investigate it and understand it better and evolve it going forward. And for me, that was just like like wildly eye-opening difference in terms of both like the scale that they were able to achieve. We're a pretty small team investing in over a hundred markets worldwide, right? But also in terms of like the quality of investment outcomes they were able to make and how efficient they were um, in investing. And so for me, as somebody who always liked technology and liked data, uh, I saw kind of this systematic investing thing at a minimum as a kind of like operational boon, but more ideally or like more realistically also as a tool to help make decisions more broadly. And it's, um, for me, fascinating to see how you can try to make small incremental steps in what you do to make large incremental steps in the quality of decisions you make. Mm, yeah, I can see that. And I think your point about scale is actually worth highlighting because 
as as VCs, you know, we always look for scalability in the companies that that we assess, and um, maybe we don't spend long enough thinking about our own processes and the scalability of the practice of venture itself. Yeah, and I think that when you get to the world of venture, time is one of the most precious commodities. Whereas at these big investment firms, there's a lot more people. You kind of have the much more hierarchical structure of, you know, the analyst, the associate, the VP, et cetera, that can kind of delegate work down the line so that the top decision makers are a lot more freed up to focus on the core investing process. In venture, they're smaller teams, and it's not like you could just kind of hand a, a piece of paper with a couple of check marks and say, invest, right? Uh, most GPs really want to understand the companies that they are tying themselves to, which makes a lot of sense. And so this idea of efficiency and operation, uh, I think, becomes even more important in venture, especially as you try to scale and make sure that you are able to process an adequate amount of deals at the top of funnel so that you're making the most informed and best investments you can when the time comes. Mm. That actually links really nicely to the story of how we got in touch with you, Will, because um, it actually came from a Twitter thread that Elizabeth did. Um, I think it was back in May now. I'm not going to read it out. I'm going to try and paraphrase, though, for, for some of our listeners. Um, I think basically Francesca saw this thread and it really jumped out because Elizabeth was articulating an idea that we had all had and was part of the reason that we wanted to start Associated. Let me just read out one of the tweets that she wrote. It was essentially about how um, her time is, you know, taken up by lots of different things and um, helping existing portfolio companies. I would imagine some of the growth projects that you've talked about, that kind of stuff. Whereas I think the idea she was talking about was that if founders go through people on the investment team, maybe associates, analysts, those kind of those kind of people that we tend to have on on this show because they're only looking at deals or at least most of their time is focused on that, it ends up moving more quickly and those people can do a much more detailed job and they can pass on that information to GPs and enable decisions to be made more quickly. Yeah. So, you know, Elizabeth is two things. She's a CEO and an investor. And I think both of those things on their own would take a tremendous amount of time. And so the question is, how can she get the most leverage in what she's doing? And I view my role as trying to produce as much leverage as possible for her when it comes to the investing world, especially. And so the way that I do that um, is my goal and my mandate is to understand how she thinks about investing to the best of my ability. And second is to try to continue to form and evolve my way of evaluating, understanding, and investing as well. And the thing that I've worked a lot on doing is then trying to structure the way that I have conversations with her in a way that melds those two things together. So where I know what she needs and what she's, what are top of mind for her, and I'm making sure I'm hitting that. And I'm able to synthesize and articulate the larger investment thesis for this company. And so when I am able to come to her and say, I like this company for XYZ reason, I think you're going to like it for ABC reason. Are, are you ready to talk to them? 
all of a sudden I've combined those two things where she has seen me do it enough times and understands my ability to kind of mind meld with her and evaluate on my own, that she has a really high confidence in the suggestion I'm putting forward. We've done this probably a hundred times that now when I come in with a really high conviction, hey, we should, we should invest in this company. And so I'm able to have that conversation a lot more quickly and we're able to move real, really fast. So that week was an interesting week in which we had two companies, one of which I talked to and basically I said, Elizabeth, let's get on the phone right now. And in 10 minutes, she was like, okay, I completely agree with you. Sent an email to the founders, said, can you talk today? And we wrote a check within 36 hours, right? And so it's a really quick investing process when you have this alignment of your evaluation process, the people in it and thinking. And so I think that that is the value that like actually talking to an associate can provide. I think a lot of times in venture, you hear people say, hey, uh, don't talk to associates, like it's a waste of time. Well, the associate is the person who ideally understands the way that the firm is investing across partners in the most holistic way. And ideally has built enough credibility that they are able to kind of pound the table in an effective way to move an investment forward when they have conviction. And so I think an associate can be a great advocate for you if you're a founder. And I think it's also key to have GPs that um, are kind of willing to give room to the associate, right? Are willing to kind of give them opportunities to grow, learn, have conversations, have the dialogue go back and forth so that they build up a confidence in what the associate is able to do. And the associate builds up a set of capabilities that make them better, better at what they're doing. And everybody in the organization is able to move more efficiently. So that is like my take on how associates should work in a venture firm. Well, can you be our spokesperson for Associated, please? Because I think you've just yeah. summarized our entire thesis. Which is, it's like, it's so interesting, right? Don't you hear it so often? People are like, the Associate is useless. And I think in some situations that could be true depending on how an organization utilizes an Associate. But if they're utilizing an Associate that way, I think it's a huge lost opportunity for everybody involved. Also, like I'm willing to continue to have conversations with companies even if well, you know, we decided not to invest later on, right? If there's something I had conviction on, I can continue to kind of monitor them, talk to them. We can circle back and say, hey, I know that originally we weren't sure about investing in them. I've seen X, Y, Z. Let's come back and review it again, right? So it gets somebody internally pounding on the table and to prolong conversations and develop relationships. Mm. Yeah, I love the way you described it as well as a sort of win-win scenario, you know, in that, there is a lot for associates to learn and we can be in a position where really what we are getting out of the relationship is, you know, an enormous amount of experience. And as you said, developing your own way of investing and way of thinking about that process. And clearly you're putting that to, to amazing use in terms of the systemization piece, but equally, you know, GPs and partners have a lot to, to gain from that relationship as well. You know, I, I love the point about being able to sort of outsource some of that. And in imparting that wisdom on someone else, you basically boost your own efficiency, right? Like you sort of put another you out into the world. <laughs> you double down on, on whatever thesis and approach you've already got. And I think that might be what's overlooked in that 
in that scenario that you 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 mention um whereby people might make jokes about associates being a bit useless and you know don't speak to an associate always go and speak to the partner or whatever but I think for me it's about respect and it's it's about respect within the venture fund and then that I think um can be extrapolated you know if there's mutual respect within a fund and people are working together as a team then there's no reason why founders or entrepreneurs or anyone else shouldn't be perfectly happy speaking to anyone yeah I'm quite interested in the the story you told us about the 36 hours and the check handed over that must have been such an amazing moment where you're like let's get on the phone I've I've nailed it here but back to your sort of systemization strategy obviously you found uh, the needle in the haystack so to speak and you you've lined up all the criteria that you were after how are you going to try and make sure that that happens more often from that experience yeah and so what I think the evolution of systematic investing looks like is trying to get as much quality information as possible at every stage of the investment process. Then then taking time to dive in and understand that information and reflect on it and learn from that and enhance your process going forward, right? So what we have recently done is, you know, we went through the process of kind of just like st- standing up the information ca- capture, right? Like, what are the things that we think are most important for us to know when we invest? Uh, how can we structure that that information capture and store it? And kind of at first, you do the most basic kind of rules and um, assistance in our investing process as possible with that information, and so we've gone through a process of saying, hey, let's look at all the companies we've invested in and let's try to say what we think is good, bad, could use work, right? Unknown in those investments and see, is there a pattern to the things that we're missing? And how can we then go back to stage one of our information capture and enhance the information we get to better run the process going forward, right? So it's kind of like a cycle. What do you think you need? Getting it, reviewing it, and starting back again. And so this company that I was talking about is just one example of many where we've tried to kind of not just do it for the company, but do it holistically and say, hey, what was great here? What stood out? What gave us conviction in our investment? How can we get that conviction or the information that can lead to that conviction early in our process in a more standard, quick, and efficient way and make sure that it stands out to us when we're running our investment process? And I think what people do a lot of times is they they make it too complex, right? And they think it's like this like big, intangible, like theoretical exercise. Like, no, like the key to systemizing something is just starting to chop wood, right? To get stuff done get it out there in a way that you can actually start to review the results and iterate it going forward. And you'll be amazed at the way that you can slowly incrementally evolve a systemized investing process. If you just start to get it out there, like, you know, it's like the same as the the lean startup concept of just like hypothesis, test, iterate, the exact same thing. 
with a systemized investing process. Yeah, it's not about getting it perfect. It's about starting because then you're starting to capture data. Once you've done that, you'll be able to refine the process more quickly. Yeah, and a lot of times people, like you never know what you're going to need in the end, right? And so you can spend all this time kind of hypothesizing what you're going to need. Then when it comes time to actually implement it and do it, you're going to spend a bunch of time on that. And then you maybe there was a whole bunch of, there definitely, not maybe, there definitely be a whole bunch of stuff that you don't need and a bunch of things that you're missing, right? And so the key is to just get going. And if you can do that, you're going to be able to get value really quickly. And I, I appreciate that it must be quite a long process that has lots of moving parts within it. But I'm, I'm keen to hear a bit from you about, okay, so we've established that you just need to get started. You need to begin that data capture process. Um, it's all about kicking it off. What would be some of the first practical steps to take to do that? And what are you doing yeah. personally? So the first step is always kind of just like a hardening of what you do, asking basic questions of like, hey, what do you do? What info do we use? How do we evaluate it? And what do we do based on those evaluations? Right? Like that is just the quick first step of systemizing the investment process. It's just asking what we do and getting more granular and detail and structured on it. Right? And then from there, you kind of build out the pieces. The first is always going to be data capture. You want to make sure that you figure out Um, creative ways to get the information that you need or that you think you'll need, which again, could be something totally different today than what you actually need tomorrow, but just getting the information capture in place and then trying to figure out kind of like high value ways to use that data now. So I think a good example of that is, are there combinations of characteristics of a company that you know are not going to be a fit for you? If you can identify those kind of low-hanging fruit type situations where it's just like a simple shape of a company that you know is not going to be a fit, all of a sudden you can create basic rules that help identify those things that are not going to be a fit for you and more efficiently deal with them in your operations, right? But hopefully also continues to add value for that company, right? So a big thing that we do is we always give you feedback. We always want to tell you why we think that you're not a fit. And so part of what's great about this systemization process is that we thought a bunch about, hey, what are the combinations of companies that we don't think are fit for our investing strategy? So now all of a sudden I have a bunch of cases coming in that I can identify a lot more quickly and that I can then give feedback to and try to help out and progress through our investment process in a, in a lot quicker and more efficient fashion. And so that's just like a, when I came in and I kind of built the bare bones of that, all of a sudden, the value was clear, right? I gave time back to the firm. Even if we're making the same quality investment decisions, we're doing it in, in less time. Mm, yeah, I can see that that's super valuable as well. Um, in the interest of sort of playing devil's advocate, what do you think about the risk of dehumanizing the process if you systemize it to the extent that you remove the emotive nature? You know, you talked a bit about intuition and gut feel earlier, um, which yep. do tend no, to be no. phrases thrown around in, in venture. But I think, you know, I, I don't think we're anywhere near probably cookie cutter venture decisions. But is there, yep. is there a risk of that with the data driven processes and how do you mitigate against it? 
I think there's a total risk of that depending on how you implement it, right? Like I think that there is still an art to venture. And if you try to oversimplify it and like you're saying, kind of like pull the human out of it, you're going to do something wrong. And so the key is to identify the places where you can get leverage from systemizing and technology, but where human interaction is still a part of the process, right? And so the way that we do it is we try to um, make sure that we have transparency and check off on everything that our systems are doing, right? And not only as like an error thing, but to make sure like, hey, we are still an active part of this process. We are still giving it mindshare and we're still thinking about it, right? Because I think there's like this idea of like, oh, I systemize and I forget about it. Like, nope, that's not, that's not how it works, mm. right? It is just trying to make it so that the ROI of each minute that I spend on a deal is maximized to the best extent possible, right? That's and good. so we're not talking about scenarios without humans. We're talking about scenarios where humans can operate more efficiently and effectively. Yeah, I I totally agree with that. And we we were mentioning um, offline that you were helping a company pivot today, um, pivot their idea. And and to that point, you know, if you get a business that approaches you and tells you idea, and you start eliminating criteria based on on you know the business idea or or various other things, you might end up missing an opportunity of finding an individual and a team that might not have the best idea, but have all the ingredients to grow into something that could turn into an incredibly exciting business in the future. So you do have to be so careful that just because the initial criteria of of the product might not be exactly what you're looking for based on your database, that doesn't mean that there isn't an opportunity where your um, GPs can come in and completely transform their business from their own experiences. Yeah. And I think it's also really important, especially at early stage venture um, to think about this because there's so much information that is so hard to capture in terms of what we use to make our investment decisions, right? So much in pre-seed seed is about the founding team, right? The track record is is limited of what they've done with this company, right? You're really pre-product market fit. And so you're betting so much on a founder that it's really important to make sure that you get a really solid read on the people and not just what their capabilities are and what they have done, but what they're able to do going forward and their adaptability, right? Because there's so much unknown, regardless really of how great you've done so far that a lot of things you're looking for are to understand, hey, how is this person going to be able to adapt to adversity going forward? I think we've seen a huge example of that in the past three months. There's no way that, you know, the vast majority of people could have seen the economic situation that we are currently in three, six, nine, 12 months ago, right? And so ideally, we're investing in founders who are able to adapt with the challenges that they are facing, uh, including one that is as 
kind of like wild and unimaginable as this one, right? I don't think that in anybody's like scenario planning, they were like, oh, um, yeah, here's our base case for worldwide economic meltdown, right? Like they're that's like the <laughs> worldwide economic meltdown was not like a scenario in their planning, right? Uh, and so you're looking for people who are able to kind of roll with the punches. Uh, and that's hard and to quantify. That is, that is the hardest thing to quantify is people. Like academic doesn't really demonstrate that, I don't think. Um, right. it or, is, it is or by, your previous job, it's, it's so hard to quantify that. It is so hard to quantify, especially because it's a lot more of the intangibles that we're talking about, right? What is your ability to visualize, synthesize, adapt? Are you coachable? Are you able to, like a lot of things that we look for are kind of like coachability, right? The ability to delegate, the ability to kind of build teams, right? Like how do you, it's really hard to figure out a question that answers any of those things. And so a lot of the work that we're doing right now is thinking about like, okay, we have an idea of the founders attributes and qualities they have. How do we suss that out in a good way? I think that is a huge challenge. And it is one that we will be working on for a while, but I think it's a really great exercise to undertake because even if we don't figure out the beautiful solution to it, we're going to learn a lot on the way about how we think about people, what we think is important, the different ways that we found that in founders and the different ways that you can kind of work to look for that earlier in the process. Yeah, totally. I think it's one of those things that you may as well just accept that it's not about the destination. Everything within yeah. that question is totally about the journey. No, yeah, yeah. And it's, uh, you know, we all come in, I think, with like biases and different hypotheses. And then when you're able to kind of as objectively as possible put the information down in the track record and evaluate it over time, you find, up the, find out that a lot of those preconceived notions of what good looks like get blown up. And that's part of the game, right? That, that, that's great. You learned something. Absolutely. Okay, let's, let's leave that segment there because I just love that as a point to add on. Um, well, we're going to move on to our question time segment. And you are, well, it depends how you see it, but you've just said that rolling with the punches is something that's important to you. So you have the um, absolute privilege of being the first guest that we're going to trial our new segment on. Um, and what we're going to do is a sort of quick fire question segment to get to know you better, get into your head a bit more. Is that all right? Hope so. <laughs> we'll find out. <laughs> <laughs> we certainly will. All right. Okay. Let's kick it off then. We'll start with an easy one. Let's ease you in with one that you must have been thinking about. Either or working from home or working from an office. Working from home. Not only because I think it's going to become easier and easier. Uh, but because I think it allows you to achieve that work-life balance idea uh, in a lot easier way. You're able to kind of optimize your time and your location and your circumstance and still be professionally productive. So work from home. Excellent. I agree with you. The only thing I think work from home is still missing is the social aspect of being able to like yell at someone and get their attention. Amen. Amen. Also, everybody I know who has kids, I think, disagrees with my point <laughs> oh yeah 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 we've got some bias on this show no kids yeah. here. <laughs> all right uh next up let's crank it right up this is the hardest question i think 
Um, if you start your own fund, what would you name it? Um, I think uh, that I would name it maybe Perspective Ventures. I think perspective is like one of the most valuable things I have found in my life, making sure that you maintain yours and broaden it. And so I think Perspective Ventures is what I would pick. Trademark, copyright, 2020, property of Will Breaker. It's done. It's yours. Yeah, I love that. I can't wait to see that startup. <laughs> um, all right, third and final question then. This one's more about what you like doing. Where's, where's your heart? What do you enjoy learning about more when you're going through a due diligence process with a company? Is it the team or is it the product? The product. So when I do a due diligence process, I basically have kind of structured the information that I make sure I want to walk away with. And one of the biggest things I try to do is to guardrail myself from digging too much into the product. I love learning about like a new industry and the mechanics of how it works now and the technical part of um, kind of how this new product that somebody's envisioning is going to work and asking them kind of the devil's advocate questions, and nitty gritty questions. And then I'll look down and be like, oh my God, I've been talking about this for way too long. Like I, I have to, this person I assume has other things to do in their life. So I have to kind of pull myself back and uh, make sure that I, hit all the boxes that I want. It's, it's so totally the product that I love. That, I love how clearly you could answer that question. I don't think you hesitated. No, 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 no. It's, it's like, <laughs> I, I have to remind myself all the time, like, stop asking about the product. So I'm asking about- Awesome. All right. Thank you very much. I'd say that segment was a success, Francesca. What do you think? What do you think, Will? Um, yeah. I think another good one could be like, what is your like biggest pitch deck pet peeve? Yeah. Like what is, what is the slide you dislike the most in a pitch oh, deck? Oh, I love that like question. That. You know what I mean? Well, I, well, I'm throwing it back at you. What is your, uh, slide? My, uh, slide is the up and to the right is always, especially at pre-seed. It's like, Wow. I'd love to see how you projected four years out of this company that's been around for four months. That is awesome, right? But it's, it looks good. It's up and to the right, so it must be good. And then the slide that I love, I always make to sure to spend the most time on, is the four box. But just, just because I want to see what axis, how they've labeled the <laughs> axis. Like, what are the two dimensions <laughs> that they have chosen to, to represent the companies? I think that that is always the most interest. I, I learn something every day when I look at the axes of the four box and ask like, wow, how did they pick that one? That is an interest. I know, I knew they were going to be in the upper right quadrant. I just didn't okay. know what that quadrant was going to be. <laughs> I was going to pick that one as my ugh slide, but now that you've said that, you're right. Yeah. Why? Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like the delving into someone's psyche. What possessed I love you? it. I now love it. Yeah. I now love it. I love that. It's very optimistic. Great. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's time to wrap up, Francesca. Yes. Um, the one question I have is, are you guys hiring? We're not. But I can talk a little bit about how I thought about getting into venture, finding jobs, etc. Yeah, I'd love that because oh, I think yeah. you really, excuse the pun, hustled into 
your current role right now. So I'd yeah. love to hear about your thought process. I think everybody has kind of like different strengths of who they are that they need to make sure that they emphasize through the process of trying to find an opportunity in venture. And so, you know, I have friends who are kind of the great networker are like amazing at meeting people and creating social connections and have the most extensive network that you can imagine. I have friends who have become really deep subject matter experts on certain industries or verticals, right? And so they are able to say, hey, I know a lot about this thing that I think is going to be important going forward. And I have friends who have also done the content play where they try to kind of build a lot of medium posts or Twitter presence, et cetera, around their venture thoughts and perspectives. And the thing that I have found is that like what I am good at is doing work. I like to just like do work and get stuff done. And so I tried to leverage that and say, hey, I have a certain set of experiences and capabilities. I think they could be helpful. Let's try to figure out a way in which I can be helpful to you so you can get better get to know me and so that I can get uh, an opportunity to know you, do work, and hopefully you'll provide me an opportunity to learn because all I'm here to do right now is to learn and get closer and closer to what I think my North Star is. And so I did the approach of, let me work for you. Like, let me just work for you. Let me do some projects for you and let's see where it goes. Um, I think that, I think that's my strategy. And I think everybody has a different strategy that works for them. And then I've heard like a couple of hacks about like how to find jobs in venture. One, I think a great way is just to kind of like broadly network, go on to LinkedIn and figure out kind of firms that you're interested in. See if you have second connection to somebody there and be like, hi, I'd love to learn more about what you do and introduce myself. Like, do you have 15, 30 minutes? I think that's a really great way to meet people. I think if you have advocates and mentors, that's really, really important as well. Right. And so I kind of built these people who I had worked for, who knew what I could do and who believed in me and who were able to kind of go pound the table to other people and say, Hey, you should talk to this person. Um, I like, you know, I think he's a solid player and somebody who can potentially add value, but he's just trying to get to know people like, do you mind talking to him? So making sure you kind of get those advocates. And then um, I think number three is understanding the dynamics of the venture life cycle and putting that in as a lens through where you look at venture funds. So if you see venture funds that um, have made investments recently or who have actively raised funds, there's a chance that there's opportunities and jobs there, like looking into them and trying to reach out, I think is a good idea. Um, There are a bunch of different kind of key blogs and newsletters that are going to come out periodically, always offering up new jobs. I think um, clearly the one that we all know is like John Gannon's blog. The thing that I find is that when you see a job posting in John Gannon's blog, probably a thousand people have already applied to it before you even saw it. So I, I worry about my probability of, of getting a conversation there. But there are a lot of other ones uh, where venture firms across the world um, post like the generalist or accelerated, right? Like these smaller kind of venture newsletters for people who are trying to get into the industry and normally provide job opportunities a little bit earlier in the life cycle than you'll see in mainstream blogs. 
great advice there. So thank you very much for that. And I think that brings a huge amount of value to our listeners. Um, and sorry, I lied. I do have one more question. How do people get in touch with you, Will? Yeah, they can always email me at will at hustlefundvc.com. LinkedIn messages work too. Well, can we share your reading list? You sent me a reading list and some of the, the prep emails that we exchanged. Absolutely. We'll do that. We've got a Notion page where we collate great resources that our guests tell us about. So we'll stick both of them up on there. Cool. Amazing. Well, thank you for answering all our questions. Well, you have been amazing. Thank you. All right. And thank you all so much for tuning in to Associated. You can get updates on the latest guests and episodes that we've got up on Twitter. We're at associated underscore pod. And you can also email us. We're on associatedpodcast at gmail.com. If you've got questions that you want to ask any of our guests or comments and feedback, we'd very much welcome those. Please do subscribe and leave us a rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. And we'll be seeing you next week.